to the Data Driven Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. All right, welcome to the Data Driven Podcast, where we dive deep into getting more value from our business data. Whether you're a data professional, leader, or just curious about developing data skills, the Data Driven Podcast is here to guide you along your journey. I'm your host, co-founder of Story IQ, Dominic Bohan. Yesterday, John and I talked about how to construct a data identity mode. And today we're going to continue our conversation and discuss how brands should build a marketing data strategy. Okay, here's my conversation with John Velkamp, Identity and Data Strategy Lead at Capgemini. John, thanks for joining us again today on the Data Driven Podcast. Thanks, thanks for having me. Okay, let's talk marketing data strategy. And can you share some best practices for brands that are looking to build a marketing data strategy? Absolutely. First and foremost, and I will make the assumption that people will be so intrigued by the start of this one, they'll go back and listen to the previous podcast. So that would think on that. It's almost guaranteed. I, you know, money in the bank, right? So with that assumption, we talked a lot about data quality and data sourcing. So, yeah. you know, the first thing is you have to figure out what data is going to move your needle. Like it sounds like every, and this is where humans versus machines can have a good go. There's a lot of tools out there that you, you leave to learn and you can watch you know, things pop in your data. So assume you, you have some customers, start with that assumption as well. You need to look at what's performing and then you need to look at what you think is going to perform. So the first step is to really evaluate what's working, what you think should work, yes, no. And then let machine learning take a gander. Let it just wander around, look for these crazy connections. And then human test them like, is this real? <laughs> is there something here? Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen this correlation occur. Do I want to pivot off that and use it? And then what do you do? What do you always do? You test. And then you test again. And you test one more time. And then you test your tests. So a lot of it is really confirming what you have and what you think you know is valid. That's step one. Then you can go about trying to get more of that data, additional data, like adjacent data. We can, we can cover that. And more better. So let's make the analogy of car enthusiasts and you are trying to sell cars. Obviously, you want to know enthusiasts and people who, you know, have expressed an interest in a vehicle, but you want to find out what that means. There's some companies that do provide a view into DMV-based data, but that's controlled. So you have mm-hmm. to be thoughtful about how you can engage with that. And while we have data from the DMV, uh, you register your car. That's the, uh, the DMV. But again, to this is actually a really good example of how to interact with data. Because you might very well want to know who has a BMW um, in their garage, or in my case, a cheap Toyota truck, (laughs) whatever works. You can get that data, but you can't just say, hey, John, I heard you have a Toyota truck. You know, that thing's so old, don't you want to replace it? Because you look up the year and VIN, right? No, you're not allowed to do that with public data, or I should say DMV data. It's, It's not publicly available. It's something, it's from the government. So you do have ways to say, like, there are certain companies like Polk, they have a new name. Shame on me. Polk's the old name for the auto data. I, the new name is escaping me. But, Forgive me. What I'm confused by is 
how can you get other people's? Could I find out that you drive a Toyota pickup truck no. from the DMV? Okay. That's a great question. And that is a fantastic question. Um, no, what you can do is you can find out people in a certain geo who are likely to own a truck. And what they do, and we talked about this in the other podcast, which people are you know, running to right now, tripping over things as they go there, is that some data is modeled and, and you model it off of seeds. And we talked about this where if you have a 3% seed you know, ratio to the data, that's not very strong. Well, Polk's great about using really strong seed data. Like I think, and don't quote me on this, like 70 plus percent. So if they say 94070, here's the people who own Toyotas. It's not true. It's mostly true. And by the way, you can't just say John has a Toyota. They'll say, give me your file and we'll tell you who does, or we'll, we'll allow, we'll touch that file in transit as you push it out to somebody to put out uh, an advertisement. So there's a lot of controls on it. So you can't just say who owns a Toyota, but you can still take advantage of that data set. But then again, that's, we're kind of cycling back to, I have, I'm trying to sell a car, I have vehicle interest. DMV is one source. There's people who've expressed interest. And again, from 14 year old clicking on the Ferrari mm-hmm. site to, you know, the guy actually in the right financial zip code in Beverly Hills to buy an Austin Martin clicking on the Austin Martin website. So, so you buy interest data and then you buy adjacent data. Like there's, and this is where the, again, the human slash machine learning kind of do the dance. Like you may have assumptions like everybody is, I know what an, a truck enthusiast is like. They're going to have a, a dog and maybe a gun and they make all these assumptions. Right. right. But you may find out in certain geos, no, they don't mm-hmm. have dogs. They don't have guns. Or again, these are sloppy analogies just for immediate identification. But we all, all marketers have assumptions about the dissociative qualities of data, which are, have to be either proven or disproven. And it doesn't mean you don't buy like pet enthusiasts with car enthusiasts. You could, but you have to test it out. But the point is you build your footprint from going from, I know this is something I got to buy to this is adjacent and may, may flavor. It'll widen the aperture of people you can talk to pause here. You can also use that data for targeting and customization of messaging, but we'll get to that in a minute. Cause yeah. if you're, if you really do have a truck and you have a dog, like you're going to be more likely to click on the one that has the dog in it. You know, it's human nature. Like, Ooh, that looks like me, you know? And so, well, maybe we would have to test it. Right. That's pretty well, nice. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then AI will pick the dog. Right. Right. Um, right. But yeah. So kind of cycling back to this, you do look for adjacent data sets, you test them, mm-hmm. you start to build your data footprint and awareness of somebody, and then you constantly test. Yes. So when it comes to the adjacent data, Mm-hmm. how can people identify adjacent data that's worth experimenting with and how can they test it without paying a huge sum of money to access it? Ah, that's tough. Mm-hmm. In life, you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. You know, And so I'm happily biased having worked at Axiom for many years. They have great data and they spend a pile of money to get that great data and a pile of money to keep that great data. And thus buying it is not, you know, Free or cheap. Thank goodness there are like a finite number of data providers. So that's the good news. Like you you have about eight that are relevant. And 20 if you go a little more specific, like income has a different set of data providers that are really solid, behavioral, etc. We're talking data right now. We're talking, I'm going to call it offline or real world data. We're not talking about online behavioral data. That's a whole subcategory. And I'll get to that in a minute. But to your question... You can sample it. You could say, I want Axiom's pet enthusiast data. You know, here it's really sharp. 
And there are tool, uh, there, there are platforms out there, notably LiveRamp, where you can say, here's my footprint of people I want to go after. Let's just pick the ones who have a, a strong, you know, pet engagement or likelihood of, uh, well, there's two, there's likelihood of pets and then there's enthusiasts. But let's just say we, we pick the ones who align to having a pet and you can test it. But knowing that, just pause here back to the whole identity's king, there's always some blur mm-hmm. and some slop when you go from the data you know as a brand to any any other data traversal tool. I'm not trying to throw shade on LiveRamp at all, but there's always a little, you know, they didn't get this one right. So you're 100 people leaving your your brand's you know data portal going to LiveRamp may only come out to be 60. So, you you know, and how they identify the 60, there may be one or two, maybe 10 that are wrong, just Mm -hmm. wrong. And that's okay. And I'm, again, I'm not insulting them because they have a hard job. Yeah. But then when you apply that data, you're counting on the Axiom LiveRamp intersection of identity to make sure that the the 16 people they say are dog owners are really there. I happen to know that LiveRamp and Axiom have extremely close relationships. So thankfully there's no slop there, but there could be with other with other like uh, other data providers on the uh, the data marketplace at, at LiveRamp, but that is your question. That's a way to take a sip, taste test, you know. But you have to caveat that's not really testing the data truthfully. It's the with the known slop in the system. Again, not not a lot, but it's mm. just you have to be honest with yourself. And frankly, the only way to test data is on nearly identical campaigns slash like it's almost impossible to test data in isolation. So you have to always bear that in mind. Because I've seen this a lot, is campaigns performance can be enhanced by data, but it can rarely be trashed by data. So it's kind of talking from the negative side, if you will, like you can't ruin a campaign with data. The worst case scenario is you get an ad for a truck and a dog and you're like, I don't care. But you're not like, that's it. This, you know, pounding the desk. I've had it with you. Mm. You know, you're just like irrelevant. Like of, of the thousands ads I see every day, you don't even, it doesn't even register. So they can help good ads. They can't ruin, they can't ruin marketing. So just a kind of a, a word on, you know, know what data really can do in reality. Because like if you put an ad in front of the person at the wrong time, an irrelevant site, shame on you. I don't care how mm-hmm. much data you use to get it to them. You know, you know that's still irrelevant. Or if your call to action is bad, or your imagery is bad, or your, you know, there's so many things that can ruin a, an ad campaign. Data really is not one, but it can do wonders if you do tests. You know very controlled. I'm on Facebook, you know, this time, this time block, same audience, dog. Yes. Dog. No. (laughs) See who performs, you know, gray truck, black truck, you know, that kind of, you can do that sort of stuff and you can test the efficacy. There is one thing I want to come back to though. Uh, So we've got four steps, right? I like this framework. So what's working, what do we have that's working now? Mm -hmm. What should we have? What could be working Mm -hmm. then? potentially using some machine learning and that really ties into the third step of test, test, test and prove it. And so I think I led us a little bit down the wrong path there in terms of, well, how can we prove that uh, the, what did you call it? Sorry, the the peripheral data, what was the word you used? Adjacent. Adjacent data. Okay. That's my new new favorite word. Okay. I like that. Okay. So, yeah, so we talked about, how we could uh, potentially see if the adjacent data is at least good quality. What I'd be really interested to know is how can we work through what is the additional data that we want to get access to? So we, we know what's working. 
how do we think through what would even be worth paying for and maybe even prioritize that? That is a fantastic question. So just a point of clarity, adjacent data, I would classify as things that are related to data you already have. So let's pick, let's move off the dog and truck and auto thing. This just fast food affinities. That's it's a little greasy, but we'll deal with it. You may shop and or engage in quick serve restaurants. You may yep. also what's that? <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> and you may have a particular brand of choice. Mm-hmm. What you could you could consider an adjacent category, and this is again it's based on human assumptions. So mm-hmm. we'll get back to that in a minute. Okay. Is snack food. Mm. Again, going down kind of a dark health path, but bear with me. You could be like, uh, has a propensity to buy snack food, and you get that data from a source. You might also say, and again, now we're now we're getting a little judgy, but you could also say maybe not entirely as physically active as they might want to be. We can kind of form this picture in our, our mind of this this person. But so you may the adjacent categories would be, you know, they're not indexing heavy on health and running marathons. Just yep. they're not a, maybe. And again, this is we, we could reframe it and say someone that's into fitness probably not, doesn't consume a lot of fast food or beer or cigarettes. Yeah. So sure. it's like an elite athlete or that's really into triathlon or something. Just a point of order, normally data is designed for the positive signal. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't want to get the negative so in other words, health enthusiasts which would be, mm-hmm. you're like, well, give me the unhealth enthusiast. Like they don't really, data companies really don't do that. Mm-hmm. They look for like, like um, I'm considered a health enthusiast. I work out somewhat frequently, but I'm certainly not like a triathlete. And they want to include me because maybe I'm aspirational. And again, we're mm-hmm. going way deep on the data, like how data is constructed, but it's, it's relevant, especially for marketers because they need to know what's, what's behind the data. You may want to just back to this analogy of quick serve eater, <laughs> You may want to pick, and I don't think they have these because this is not okay to do, but someone who's not healthy. Let's just yeah. rip that from this discussion because it's not applicable. But point is, if they, you, you wouldn't want to negatively select or select the bottom uh, scores of healthy because it doesn't mean, that doesn't mean they're unhealthy. It just means they're not as healthy as other people. Yeah, or, or, so they, or could they even be really healthy, but the data provider just hasn't picked up signals that they're into oh. making certain purchases associated with health? Exactly. The sources they may have may not have picked up that signal. So let's just go over to, the, so big box stores will tell you who buy snack food. I wouldn't say that. You can get data that's informed by big box snack food purchasing. That's a, that's that I know. Let's yeah. with that. That's an adjacent data set. Yeah. It's not the same thing, but it's adjacent and it's relative. It's related. All this is, so you're asking, well, what do I do to, what do I do to evaluate what performs adjacent and otherwise is you have to, at some point pull in, frankly, all the data you can, and you said at the end of your last podcast, less is more. I don't know about that. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Less irrelevant data is more. But if you find out that there are, with some machine learning, some some modeling, like what pops when you just look for correlation, just very simply, you may find non-intuitive adjacent data elements. And that is also something you should look into buying. But at some point, you really have to look at Axiom has... 4,000 elements, something mm-hmm. like that. Certainly some of them are similar and you can kind of rule out because they're very duplicative and some, you know, you don't want, but let's just say there's, there's 2,000 you can examine. In theory, you should f- look at them all because you don't know. Now, is it feasible from a cost perspective to just say, I'll just buy them all and figure it out? 
it's feasible to say, may I test your data for a little okay. while and come back with a shortened list? Oh, absolutely. And that's that's a good practice. And and just you know, again, having worked at Axiom and I know other data providers think this way, it's like they don't want to sell you their whole catalog. Mm-hmm. They, they want to sell you stuff that works. Why? Because if it works, you're going to come back. And they're going to be like, yay, your data was awesome. It did what I wanted. Now, depending on the size, it may be just they're, they're like, for the sake of, you know, $20 more a month, just take the whole thing because we don't have to do any work to parse it. And then you just literally only pick up the fields you want it, you know, maybe a function of that or yeah, drag it along. What the hell? See what happens. <laughs> but the point is the adjacent data has to be discovered intuitively like human logic and machine learning to see what pops, you know, th- so and you should be able to, most data providers will give you a sample. You give them, you know, 10,000 records, 100 records, something. They'll give you a full stripe back. They'll say you can use it for these terms. Go run your analysis. Come back with what you'd like. It's very common. <laughs> so, Yeah, so you gave us some examples of uh, some stuff with health that we might think is obvious. Have you seen some interesting examples of signals that were correlated and that have been useful to your customers that were not at all obvious? Perhaps very surprising. Honestly, no. I mean, and I and I, it's funny. It, you know, cause you you want to leave that out there, but most things are can be explained intuitively. While they may not pop right away, you go, "Why is that?" And you can usually rationalize your way back, to like, "Oh, I could see that." You know, because humans are very predictable creatures. I can give you an interesting exercise that was was done that speaks to. You don't know what you don't know till you find it out, and then you figured out you knew it. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about who's likely to buy an EV, that's a question that's been bounced around a lot mm-hmm. in data companies. Like, how do you predict that? There's a guy named Steve Smith at Axiom, wicked smart, very thoughtful, and I'm crediting him. So if this gets out there, Steve, this is yours. I'm not taking credit for it. Okay. Um, he basically came up with a framework to identify all potential buyers. And he classified them. And again, this is Steve Schmidt's work, Axiom, great guy. And what we basically got to realize is that it's not a spectrum, like left to right, it's a circle. And that the most hardcore, you know, petrol or death guy or gal starts to become, with the right criterion, also correlating a new tech adopter. It's hard to explain, and it take a long time. But what we find is that people's behaviors are largely cyclical or everybody falls into a spectrum. But if one index is deeper than another, like income, income is probably the the biggest indicator of performance on most campaigns I've seen, you know, like simply, can you afford what we're showing you? You know, and that's like, if you had it, like if you had to pick one element of data to go, well, I shouldn't say this. Everyone's going to yell at me. If I had five data, data, like data elements to pick, you know, to, to use income would be one. Because income, you know, there's so much associated with it. Where you live, what you spend, what you drive, <laughs> what you can afford, lifestyle, you know, everything. Like, you know, do you have a dog? Can you afford a dog? <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. Incomes can be a blocker for a dog, you know, at a certain level. Anyway, so no, I think, but machine learning might uncover connection to a data set that you didn't think about. And I'm trying to think of a good example of that. No, I noticed that politically that the um, we there's there's behaviors and income patterns across independents, Republicans, conservatives, Democrats. Like there's it's almost related like, to electric cars. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking in general. Like their political mm-hmm. affiliation is income is one of the biggest indicators of political affiliation. 
to a point and then it flips. That's I guess the best way to say it is ultra ultra rich people tend to flip back. There's certain income bands where they flip back. That's the best way to say it. Like you're you're so like low income Republican. It's it's like medium you're, to high income Democrat, ultra rich Republican. Is that the relationship? And libertarian, and then ultra ultra rich Democrat. Like and so that's I, like mega mega billionaire rich goes back to Democrat again. Well, so you can imagine <laughs> we don't we don't have income data. You know, I say we like I still work at Axiom. Sorry, I'm, I'm in Axiom mode, so that's that's sure. the weird part. Um, yeah, at some point, like so you. I guess what I'm trying to say is. You may go, I can't believe I'm finding this This person has a political affiliation of X when I would have thought Y. It's like, well, okay, wait, look at the income. Oh, look at the zip, the zip like in California. Like you can't swing a rope in California without hitting a Democrat. Like, you know, that's just the way it is. Like there's a lot here. You go, you know, 300 miles to the West, changes everything. <laughs> so same income, same homes. All of a sudden, oh, look, it's a different. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you can sometimes put your human, like I'm trying to buy this person with this behavior, having this experience. I want to find more of them. And you want to pivot out on like, let's just say political identity and income. You may go, oh, I'm finding correlations I didn't expect. But if you factor in something like, well, I just took that way. If you do just political and then you go, why is this changing at this level when I move to, you know, the zip? Oh, it is the zip. The zip is the fact that it's, it's changing. So long-winded answer of saying, not really. There's no like, isn't this crazy? I mean, I'm sure there's stories and I, I forgot them, frankly, but there's, there's always going to be some spurious data connection that actually yeah. holds true. But I'm not saying look for those. I'm looking for the ones you wouldn't expect that you're like, oh, I can see this now. Because yeah. at the end of the day, and this is, this is very important, is that there's, and this is kind of like wax on, wax on, wax on, wax off kind of Zen stuff. But like, you want to get data to figure out where you are, where you are at, excuse me. But you also want it to be where you want to be aspirationally. So you need to say, like, I know I got this John guy as a customer, but I kind of want to trade up a little bit. <laughs> so, like, you, you explore the edges and you might start trying to buy data for people you want more than what you have. Um, and so you kind of have to keep both in mind like that. I may have the footprint and be able to test for John's performance on these parameters and that's, you know, but if I'm, that's a good example. There are brands that are pivoting, especially as we talked about the need, you know, the drying up ecosystem of data you can use easily, cheaply to get new customers. You have to be very thoughtful. And we're gonna get to web data, by the way, and then, then I'll, I'll jump off my little soapbox here. Um, so as companies are having to transform, like Johnson & Johnson, they, they look for ways not Johnson Johnson, let me genericize to a lot of the pharmaceuticals. They need to have engagements with their customers because the they, they have to own them more. They have to have a better interaction with the people who enjoy their products. And let's think like uh, Bayer Aspirin. And it sounds crazy. Like, do I really want to be involved with someone with Bayer Aspirin? Like, do I really want that relationship? You may not want as a customer, but they need to start doing more to develop that. The point is, is the data that they had now to choose bear or what the bear customers may shift as they get to know more. And they may look to find that like, you know, we've sold bear to 10 out of a hundred people all the time. Here's what they look like. They go, well, if we go after this next set, we get 20. So they may shift and they may have to learn and, and kind of use data to move themselves up. 
most of the time in these situations that they don't even know. And so it's a matter of just learning what are the 10, what do they look like? Um, hopefully that answers the question. I'm a little, a little left field on you. <laughs> That's okay. Um, we're almost at time there. So anything else that you want to share about how brands should build a marketing data strategy? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you covered back to this. Yeah, I absolutely think that one of the the green frontiers of the green the green fields for a lot of brands are going to be capturing their own on-site data with more clarity. And so when I talked about web intent or intent behavior, the, the kid who clicks on the Ferrari page, you know, that that model, as that dries up and is less and less relevant or less accessible or more expensive to engage with, all all which will be true you need to really develop what you know about your own your own brand and the hard part is you got to drive people to your site or your app and no one drives to an app they drive to build to install an app so it's kind of a once they install the app you know them and you're fine but to drive them to your site let's be honest you know and in doing so there are new technologies out there they're not new they're just there are companies out there who can help you set up a first party cookie essentially was what it is and that has a lot of value and I won't take too much time on it, but the takeaway is you can perform an amazing amount of analytics on that signal. Safe, nice, no one's getting hurt. Mm-hmm. It's your data, because if they're on your site, it's your data. If you remember that, doesn't mean you have to, you can know them. Anonymous data is still first party data. That's a little bit of a mind slip there. But that data is invaluable, because once they do raise their hand and say, yeah, I want to sign up, you get this awesome trail of what they've done. So I think when we talk about intent data, a lot of that has to be like farmed from within. And that's where companies should be leaning in heavily. And this is where CDPs come in are super helpful is they can take this data and say like, you don't know John and we don't know John, but we know there's a guy who's doing these behaviors and he keeps coming back at these timestamps. And to be clear, it's not a finite graph because there is some obfuscation on the web, you are anonymous. And two people sitting next to each other at the same IP can look remarkably similar, but still there's trends you can see. And that data is super valuable. I think that's probably one of those untapped sources of data out there for intent for, you know, and you can take those people and in certain environments, actually look at their data footprint and say like, what kind of demographics are on these? In a safe environment. So you don't risk, you know, exposing. <laughs> yeah. You, you're about to say that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you can. There's no, I- Live ramp, places like Live ramp, you know, can allow you to take data and they'll say, we can't tell you who it is, but we know who it is and we're not going to share it with you, but we can give you some aggregate information so you can start to learn about them. And there's other companies too. And it's great. And it's a great service. It protects the identity. And none of the data they're sharing is like, you know, has diabetes, is in debt, bankrupt. You know, it's no, mm-hmm. it's all, it's nerfed down data sets, you know. Um, that's That's really important. And I think it should be part of any marketer's plan like, you already have the customers. You just got to pay more attention to what they're doing. That's a great note to end on. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> ties into your framework. So what's working? What should you know? What else can you get? And then there's machine learning, which is a step people might apply, but the biggest step of all, test, test, test. Yeah. And by the way, there may be machine learned observations about adjacent data sets that someone will, you know, someone will reply and say, you didn't know that this crazy connection came up. I'm like, no. And that's why you do machine learning. Prove me wrong. So, Awesome. All right. Thanks for joining us. Okay, that wraps up this episode of the Data Driven Podcast. Thanks to John Velkamp, Identity and Data Strategy Lead at Capgemini, for joining us. 
One link in our show notes I wanted to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head on over to datadrivenpod.com. We have summaries of all our episodes and contact information for our guests. And if you want to share your most compelling use cases of data, you can apply to be a guest speaker on the Data Driven Podcast. You can also add me on LinkedIn. My name is Dominic Bohan and reach out directly. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a steady stream of data-driven brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. So subscribe in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow. That's all for today. Remember, until next time, when it comes to data, less is more. Uh-huh.